Just very quickly, before we get into our text today, I want to thank Brandon for leading us in prayer today and for presiding over the first half of our worship today, and remind you, or possibly announce if you haven't heard, next Sunday is the Copeland family's last Sunday with us before they move to Texas. And so I don't want them to, to slip out unnoticed, just to make sure everyone is aware of that. Next Sunday, we get to see them one more time. But today we're back in the book of Luke. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. Uh, a very well-known story. I didn't... Uh, well, well, I should say I did. I, I didn't pick Luke just to do it during Christmas. Uh, It it worked out very well that we're doing these nativity stories in December as we're thinking about Christmas, but come January, we're just going to keep right on going through the book of Luke till we get to the end of it. Uh, So this is still in the introduction of Luke. He's setting the stage for us. These opening stories are not just Advent stories. They're not just Christmas stories. We want to hear them as gospel stories. We want to hear these as Luke's own introduction. He's setting up the themes. He's telling us, This is what Jesus is about. This is what the Christian life is about, right? It's more, it's bigger than just Christmas. And today we read this very uh, familiar story of Mary and Elizabeth uh, meeting together and then Mary singing her, her song, the Magnificat, her praise and worship to the Lord for his goodness to his people. So I'm going to read these verses. Uh, if, If you would, please join me in standing for the reading of God's holy word today. Luke chapter 1, this starts in verse 39. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him, from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing on the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word this day. Lord, we recognize that your word is given to us. It's perfect. It is suitable for for everything that is necessary for life and godliness. Lord, for 
for learning, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. We ask that you, by the power of your Spirit, will use your word to accomplish your purpose in our lives, in our church, and in your world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, one of the main themes of this passage, and of course a main theme of the Advent season, is the theme of joy. And so I want to begin with this question for you today, sort of a diagnostic. How is your joy this Advent season? Where is your joy level at? I know that many of us have some complicating factors when it comes to thinking about our joy or perhaps to feeling joy, to experiencing joy in this season. There's maybe two things that are conspiring against us, both our expectations and our reality. Oftentimes we come into the Christmas season with very high expectations. We know that Advent is meant to be a time of joy, perhaps a time of sentimentality, of good feelings, of family togetherness of decorations, of hot chocolate, of everything warm and cozy. And we have this expectation that we ought to be feeling joy, that we ought to come into it just sort of overflowing with gratitude and with thankfulness and just brimming with all things bright and beautiful. As the song says, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Except when it's not. Right? Life does not take a break during the month of December. Our, our troubles... Our discontents, our our dissatisfactions, our sufferings, whatever it is, doesn't take the month of December off. And so we have our expectations on the one hand, but we also have the reality. We have the reality of our lives in this world, this fallen world in which we suffer. We suffer the thorns and the thistles of life, frustrations. We suffer from lost relationships, those which are broken by sin or those which are lost through death. We are often fearful. We're fearful during this time. We're fearful of the impending changes. We're fearful of an uncertain future. We're fearful because we don't know what the next year is going to hold for us. Whether it will be one we look back on with joy and thanksgiving, or whether it will be one that we fear to look back on, which we fear to remember. So oftentimes we have this expectation of joy and yet there's a reality. We don't feel it. We don't feel joyful, which lends that additional layer. There's guilt on top of it. We don't feel joyful and we feel like we should, so we feel even worse that we're not joyful enough. And if we're honest, sometimes we have to admit church itself can add a layer of expectations. There can be an expectation that uh, there's pressure to sing the happy Christmas carols, to hear the joyful Christmas stories told again. And and the church can become just one more place where we feel pressure that we need to put on our happy face, right? And we cannot let people see the reality. And yet we read a story like this today and our passage is about joy. But it is a very specific Christian, Jesus-focused, Christ-centered gospel joy. And that is the joy that I want us to have this Christmas season. I don't want us to settle for a cheap imitation, sort of a a Christmas sentimentality. I don't want us to settle for joy based on uh, Christmas specials, right, or Christmas movies or hot chocolate or decorations. I want us to have Christ-centered joy at Christmas, and that's exactly where this passage comes in, because that's what it teaches us. 
And so, uh, as Brooks said, I must always have three points. So these are my three points. Joy, joy in weakness, joy by faith. And joy, joy in weakness, joy by faith. First of all, let's just look at the joy in this passage. And I have another question for you. When was the last time that someone came and opened the door and you leapt for joy? That's what happens in this passage. And I wonder for you, what would it take? What would it take? What would be sufficient? What would be the good news for your heart that would be powerful enough that someone opens the door and your heart leaps for joy? Here's this story where uh, Mary comes and she goes to the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth and uh, she comes and she greets Elizabeth and it says, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. The very first thing, there's this immediate powerful picture of overwhelming joy when Jesus enters the room. It's, it's not Mary, she enters the room too, but it, it's Jesus who is there in this passage, it's so powerful that John, who's still in his mother's womb at this time, also leaps for joy. Right? Elizabeth is leaping for joy, but so is the baby that's not even born yet in her, her tummy. And some people get a little bit skeptical about a story like this. They say, well, she is six months pregnant. Right? Babies do kick at that time, and, and mothers can feel them at that time. So, you know, there was really great timing in this story. Like, Mary comes, and at the same time, the baby happens to kick, and and Elizabeth interprets that, oh, even John is happy to see you. Right? We could get skeptical, but notice, Luke explicitly tells us in this story, he says, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And what she says is therefore basically a prophecy. It's this proclamation filled with the Spirit that she gives the official interpretation of what is going on. And she is the one who says, under the influence of the Spirit, Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby leapt for joy. Right, this is actually, it's, it's somewhat supernatural going on in this passage that these two pregnant women get together and one has John the Baptist in her womb and the other has baby Jesus in her womb and when they come into the same room together, there's so much power and joy in that that, that, that an unborn baby senses the presence of another unborn baby there, and he's leaping for joy miraculously with this divine testimony that he is in the presence of his Savior. And here's what I want us to see, that that is the key to the joy in this passage. That's the key. It's not just two women who are both pregnant, both special pregnancies, both very unexpected, are now together in the same room. And of course, there's cause for joy with that because there's a lot of thanksgiving going on. But there's something greater. It's a specifically Christian joy. It's a specifically Christ-centered, Jesus-focused gospel joy. It's redemptive joy. And, and, and this is the most important point I make, right? If you don't hear this point today, not only do you miss the point, but a sermon like this becomes a burden, right? If you walk away thinking, oh, I really have to be joyful, right? And it's up to me. I have to work up the feelings and the emotions inside. I have to start to feel joy to be a good Christian. And you feel like it becomes a burden on you. You look in all the wrong places and you end up with nothing but more despair when you're unable to feel as joyful as you think you ought to. 
But that's why we need to hear this, that, that this is a specifically Christian joy, and Christian joy is unique. Christian joy comes from being in the presence of Jesus. Christian joy comes from being in the presence of Jesus. And, and don't we see that in this text? Mary and Elizabeth and John are filled with joy because Jesus is there. John is leaping for joy in his mother's womb because Jesus has come into the room. And, and Elizabeth blesses Mary because it's Jesus that is in her womb. Right? They are filled with joy because Jesus is in their presence. And, and how powerful. He hasn't even been born yet. But he doesn't have to be born yet. He's there and he's with them. And that is the reality for us as well, is it not? That for us, despite the fact that we live in this broken world, we have joy when we're in the presence of Jesus. That's the truth for Christians. Joy is found in the presence of Jesus. And we could, we could look at the flip side of that and say the flip side is equally true. Which is to say, all of our attempts to find joy, all of our attempts to figure things out apart from Jesus, all of our attempts to somehow curate for ourselves the perfect life, to get all the pieces in order, uh, to find joy by pursuing our passions, by pursuing whatever it is, all of those attempts, if they are removed from Jesus, will not lead to a sustainable joy for us. Right? The, the Christian knows joy is found in the presence of Jesus, regardless of circumstances, and if we are apart from Jesus, again, regardless of circumstances, good or bad, there will not be a sustainable joy. All those things leave us empty and wanting more. And I think the truth is, most of us know that by experience by now. Most of us know that by experience, that our attempts to find joy for ourselves, when pursued apart from Jesus, will be futile. But this is a passage that's showing us this very core truth that for Christians, joy, at Advent joy, at Christmas joy, is only found in the presence of Jesus. There's one necessary ingredient. There's not many. It's not, it's not a, a heavy burden. It's not all these things you have to pursue. It's not all these things you have to do. There is one ingredient for joy as Christians. And that is simply to be in the presence of Jesus. And that's for us why, why joy as a Christian is possible even in the midst of sadness. Right? That is why, there's one reason, I mean, that, that sounds so often contradictory, it, it sounds uh, like it just doesn't make sense, it doesn't go together, but that is why for Christians we can say joy is possible in the midst of sadness because the joy is found with one ingredient and that's being in the presence of Jesus. And, and regardless, I mean, all of us are in the midst of our ongoing unfolding stories. All of us are in the midst of some kind of uh, thing, right? Good, bad, or indifferent. All of us have had experiences over the last 12 months that we bring into this Christmas season, all of us are reflecting on what is unique about this particular Advent. Uh, but we have joy that is found apart from circumstances, and, and Christ enters into that. Right? Regardless of what our circumstances are, this Advent, Christ enters into that. And that's why it's possible to have joy. I just think about Elizabeth, and I don't know exactly what's going on in her heart. She seems to be taking everything really well, but... But her husband hasn't spoken in six months at this point. <laughs> There's got to be a few questions for her about what exactly is going on. 
But even with that, where is her joy? We know she's been pondering this for six months now, this good news. We know that she's learning the lesson because she is the one who proclaims, blessed is the one who believes. Blessed is the one who believes. Now, what do we do with this? How do we apply this? How do we apply this, this Christ-centered joy for us uh, when life is hard? Um, I was thinking about this this week and, and how oftentimes for, for kids... Christmas is a pretty simple time. Right? The, the joys for, for children at Christmas are usually pretty simple. My own kids have even started already to make their Christmas lists. Perhaps yours have long ago. And uh, one particular of my children, uh, a nine-year-old who will go unnamed, has, has, he made his list and he sorted it and he gave us the key to understanding his list. There were certain items that were marked want and certain items that were marked really want. And those were the two categories. <laughs> so it was easy for us to, to sort of sort that out and know exactly how to interpret that list. And it just reminded me that for kids, Christmas is simple. Uh, it, it's easy. It's, it's joyous. As grown-ups, we often find, do we not, that a Christmas list is more difficult to make. I saw a, a, an example that was meant to be humorous, but it perhaps had some reality on um, the internet this week. That said, uh, where was it? It said, all I want for Christmas this year is a, a sense of purpose and financial stability and, and some knowledge about the future. Right? Is that so much to ask? That's all that we want. Right? We have these, these different kinds of desires now. And, and those tend to be things that are a bit harder for us to, to put in a stocking or to, to put a bow on. But there's a lot of reality in those, and the truth is that those, those desires, those deeper desires that, that we sense, are very helpful to us. Right? Those show us a, a very important reality about us. Um, we, we look at those things, we look at our desires, and we, and we can look at our anxieties, and we can look at our fears, and we learn about Jesus through that. We learn about the world that we live in. Right? We learn that, that we do, in fact, live in part of a world that is filled with sin and misery, where things are not the way that they're supposed to be. Um, but that's part of what it is to be human. Right? And we know that the reason that we experience these longings, and Advent is often a time when, when we have very deep longings that come to the surface, and, and we recognize that we have those for a reason. Those tell us something about who we were created to be. They tell us something about the kind of world that we were created to live in. Right? That, that God has made us originally. We just go back to the beginning of the story and we see God actually made this world good, very good. He pronounced it good. He blessed it. And he made us to live in a world that was good, not a world that was broken by sin, that was fallen, uh, where we have all of these miseries and frustrations and unmet expectations and unmet longings. We have all these things and we have them for a reason, right? And, and so we find in ourselves, like this is part of why our souls are often so deeply stirred uh, with longings for something better, right? We have these longings and our souls will be stirred uh, perhaps when you're in the presence of something just absolutely beautiful, your soul is stirred because it's, it's getting a glimpse of what it was created for. Right? Whether you find that in nature, or you find that in art, or you find that in stories told through movies and through books, uh, whether you find it in a 
beautifully skilled craftsmanship, we find that our souls are stirred because we're created for something better than this. And the reality is we live in a fallen world and, and things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And, and, and this is true whether you're Christian or not, right? That we see this, we see the brokenness, we see the frustration, and we say, this just isn't right. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But one of the, the blessings of being believers is we are the ones who are able to name that. We're able to name that longing and that sin and that despair. And, and we are able to actually rejoice in the midst of it, knowing that in Christ, he is making all things new. And it, it's Christ who's able to overcome this world, which gives us the ability to look of our frustrations in the eye and to name them for exactly what they are and to feel that sadness and not to feel uh, inadequate or, or, or bad for that sadness, but to, to take it on and to feel it and to say in the midst of it, Jesus overcomes it. Right? Christ is the one who is making all things new and we have this certain hope. We have this certain hope. And so, as Christians, we, do st- we, we feel all of the, the sadness And Advent, oftentimes, is a time we feel that sadness more than other times. But as Christians, we name the joy as well. We have the sadness, we have the joy. And that's actually part of of what we see next, is that our joy is often in our weakness. Joy is in our weakness. And when we look at this song now that Mary sings, starting in verse 46, we see that it's, it's not accidental that our joy comes in the midst of our hurting. But what Mary sings in this song when she proclaims the character of God is she says, this is what he's like. Our God is a God who gives mercy to those who need it most. He's a God who lifts up the poor, sits them with princes. says, this is who God is and we're invited then as the readers to join with Mary in this song and to, to sing, who else is a God like this? Who else is a God like this who works with the hungry and the poor, the brokenhearted and the downtrodden, and he lifts them up? See, here's how, how we often get Christmas wrong and going back to our sense of expectations of what Christmas ought to be like this time of year, what Advent ought to be like, is, is we fall into this trap of thinking that Christmas is only for those who can afford it. Right? Christmas is for those who will put a big, enormous red bow on the, the hood of a brand new car in the driveway this Christmas time. Or they'll have the huge pile of presents under the tree. Or they'll have a family uh, scene at the dinner table that reminds you of Norman Rockwell and the Saturday Evening Post. We have these sort of expectations and we think that's who Christmas is for. Right? That, that's who can really have joy at Christmas time. But the passage in the song, and Mary tells us exactly the opposite. Uh, Christmas is for the humble. That it tells us God didn't send Jesus into the world to go to the cross to give uh, our consumer holiday just a little bit of a spiritual sheen on the outside. Rather, God sent Jesus into the world to lift up the downcast. God sent Jesus to feed the hungry. God sent Jesus to to go to those who were the least of these who were broken, uh, to demonstrate the mercy, to exalt those of humble estate. Says that's what Christmas is. 
Which means the very heart of Christmas is the grace of God for sinful people. Right? That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That Christmas is about God doing something for us that we simply cannot do for ourselves. It's not about what we're able to do. It's not about what we're able to provide for our families. It's not about measuring our lives. It's about rather humbling ourselves, recognizing that we in ourselves are so sinful, so broken, so lost that God sent his son to die on a cross for us. There was no other way. God is a God who comes to dwell with the lowly. One of my seminary friends wrote an article uh, some years ago now, and it was called uh, Christmas is for Those Who Need It Most. And he wrote, he says, this is backwards. He says, Christmas, the great story of the incarnation of the rescuer, is for everyone, especially those who need a rescue. He writes, Jesus came for those who look in the mirror and see ugliness. Jesus came for daughters whose fathers never told them they were beautiful. Christmas is for those who go to wing night alone. Christmas is for those whose lives have been wrecked by cancer, and the thought of another Christmas seems like an impossible dream. Christmas is for those whose lives would be nothing but lonely if not for social media. And he goes on and he goes on. And he says, that's the point because at Christmas, we're celebrating the grace and the mercy of God to those who need it most. And we can't really celebrate Christmas if we're not remembering who we are, that we are the undeserving, that spiritually we are the poor, we are the hungry, we are the ones on the ash heap. And we stand before God not addressed in our own accomplishments. We stand before him dressed only in the righteousness of someone else. Of a savior who came to earn what you could never accomplish. And isn't that the great reality of being a Christian? That we rejoice in that. And we rejoice in that and so we find that our joy is simply given to us at Christmas as a gift. And our joy is not something we earn because our salvation is not something we earn. We remember Paul even says how, how he rejoices in that. He rejoices in his weakness. Because it reminds him of who Christ is. And in 2 Corinthians 12 is where Paul talks about it. And his, he talks about his sufferings. He talks about his, his discontent and he calls it his thorn. And he says he has this thorn and he says he prays over and over to the Lord, asking the Lord if he would remove this. Take it away, because he didn't like it. He was suffering because of it. He was begging God to do something about it. Right? He had suffering. But he tells us, he, he writes that God explained to him, he said, my grace is sufficient for you, because my power is made perfect in your weakness. And he says, therefore, I boast all the more gladly in my weakness. See, Paul thought that, that this thorn, that this, this weakness, this suffering, whatever it was, he thought that that is what was going to keep him from enjoying the fullness of God's plan for him. And he thought he couldn't possibly enjoy everything that God would give to him. He wouldn't, you know, he's not living the blessed life because he has this suffering that he's dealing with that God is refusing to take away. And he's begging and begging, Lord, would you remove these hard times and, you know, just bring the good times. And God says, no, I will not do that. Because he says, my power is made perfect, not in your strength, but in your weakness. 
And so Paul says he learned the lesson that he boasts in his weakness. He boasts in the hard times. He boasts in the suffering that would ordinarily weigh his spirit down, but he says these are the good things that that force me to go to Jesus, that help me to, to remind myself I do not find joy in my circumstances because that will always let me down. I do not find joy in pursuing my passions because they will always be frustrated. I do not find joy in any earthly gift to me because they will always end. But he says his joy is found in God and in God's grace and mercy to him. And is that not what Mary sings in this song? Here she is reflecting on her life, and she says she gives glory to God. Not because God has somehow made her life perfect, but because what he has done is he has filled the hungry with good things, and that good thing is Jesus. And he's looked upon the humble estate of his servant. I think also of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Friends, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, he too, here here Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying he's not rejoicing in who he is. He says, actually, his experience is that God chooses those who are lowly. God looks upon those who are suffering. God looks upon those who are not in the eyes of this world. And God gives to them the grace and the gift of Jesus Christ himself. And what we see is this, that Jesus changes everything. Look at Mary's line, verse 48, as she's singing. She says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Hear those words, from now on. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. We, we don't know a whole lot about Mary's life prior to the beginning of this story, but here's Mary's words where she describes herself as being of humble estate. But from now on, everything is different. One commentator uh, notes that this, this phrase, just these three words, he says this is a very important phrase in the Gospel of Luke. It shows up several times, and it means exactly what we know that it means. It means that some monumental change has occurred. Something has happened that changes everything, that, that, that it becomes this dividing point in life where life prior to this is one way, but from now on, everything is different. Everything is different. And here's Mary, who was this ordinary Jewish girl of humble estate. And it was not that her material situation changed. I don't think being the, mer- the mother of Jesus brought her much fame or fortune, at least in, in life. But she says that she is blessed fr- by the Lord. And from now on, right, everything has changed. And it's the same for us, is it not? That prior to Christ, we're lost in our our sins and our trespasses, but when God in Christ looks on you in mercy, when he sends his son to the cross on your behalf, and he says, now your sins are removed from you as far as the east is from the west, and he says, now there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We say, from now on, Things have changed. 
From now on, we are in Christ. We are forgiven of our sins. We are given hope. And it might not be that your material situation changes dramatically. But perhaps we can say with Mary, He who is mighty has done great things for me. He who is mighty has looked upon the lowly. And if you can say that with Mary, there's one reason, and it's by faith. We say that because we believe. And here's the last point. It's in verse 45. The last thing that Elizabeth says in this passage is she's speaking to Mary and and, uh, blessing Mary. Verse 45, she says this. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Blessed is she who believed. Right? This is the theme that's developing in the beginning of, the Luke, of Luke, is the, the need to believe the word of the Lord and to walk by faith. To walk by faith. Zechariah didn't believe. He received God's gracious discipline. But Mary does believe. And she is blessed for it. Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment. Remember, at this point in the story, Mary is purely living by faith. She is walking by faith. Think of Mary receiving that promise from the angel Gabriel. That great, precious, glorious moment where an angel who stands in the presence of God appears and gives her a promise. And then he leaves. And do you wonder what Mary was thinking after that? I mean, you don't immediately feel the effects of pregnancy. There's nothing that's different in the moments after his departure from before his departure. What did Mary have she had no written New Testament to, to consult. She had nothing but the promise that was spoken to her. She had the word of the Lord that was given to her. And it says that she believed. She believed the promise even before she could see the fulfillment. Which is why Elizabeth says specifically, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of the word that was spoken to her. Because Mary, at that moment, was living in the time of promise, not in the time of fulfillment. And of course it was hard to believe. That's the nature of promises. That's the nature of not being able to see the fulfillment. That's the nature of walking by faith, is that it's hard. But Elizabeth says, blessed is she who has the word from God, who has nothing else to go on, but she believes. She believes and she walks by faith. And that's what it is for us today to live by faith at Christmas time, isn't it? You may feel like you have one thing and only one thing. You have this. You have the promise. You have the word of God, the promise that Jesus is with you, the word that his grace is sufficient for you. And that may not feel like a lot. Our hearts pine for other things. They pine for the fulfillment And it feels unsatisfying oftentimes to walk by faith having nothing to go on but the promise. And that's why the word commends over and over the blessedness of those who believe, those who hear the word of the Lord and they receive it and they believe. And they stack their hope on this one thing, that God himself is faithful to his word. And so friends, blessed are you when you hear the word of God and you believe that his word is true and you walk by faith and you rejoice in that, that God is a God who looks upon the lowly. That God is a God who does not forget his people.
and that does not forget his promises to his people. He looks upon the lowly, he lifts them up out of the ashes, he causes them to sit with princes. He fills the hungry with good things, but the proud he sends away empty. Blessed is the Lord our God. Isn't it good to be a Christian? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his faithfulness. We thank you that he is, in fact, the yes and amen to all of the promises that you have given to your people. And so, Lord, we pray for our own hearts at Christmas this year. Uh, Though circumstances may change, you remain the same. We We pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you would give the gift to our hearts of allowing us to walk by faith in the presence of Jesus. And as we do so, to find great joy in our Savior. Lord, may he be with us. May he be sufficient. And may he be enough for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.